0: American relativism this morning, you say, uh-oh, pastor, that's a big word, I don't know it. Good, I had to study it too, but I think as we'll see by the time we're done this morning, it is something that does affect all of us and it has affected our culture. Look back in Jeremiah chapter 6 and I'll reread one verse that Kelly read for us this morning. The Bible says in verse 19, Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. Father in heaven, we come to you. We look this morning at a passage of Scripture that deals with Judah, in particular Jerusalem, and we see a society that was upside down. And Father, we can find as Americans a correlation to our lives from this passage. There is a reality that is America found in these verses. We understand that it was written to Judah, but we also understand that the Old Testament was written for our learning, and Father, we need to learn from it today. I pray that You'll help us. Fathers, we come to Your Word this morning. May we clear ourselves of ourselves. May we examine and consider the Word of God. And may we see what it says about the absolute truth found in it. Father, while today's message is not about salvation, I do pray that if there is one soul here that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior from their sins, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, for believers this morning, I pray that You would help us to be better citizens I pray that we would not leave this service as cantankerous Christians angry at our government or angry at our philosophical system of this nation that seems to have developed, but rather, Father, we would be committed Christians seeking to change the world in which we live. For that's the point of Christianity. Change from sinful to sinless in Christ. The change from old things to new things in our sanctification and the change that we bring in our society. Father, it is our responsibility, yea, it is our duty and obligation because of the salvation we receive from Christ that we change the world we live in. I pray that you'd help us to do so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Appreciate you being here this morning. Certainly, as we have looked at America, back on Memorial Day and as we'll look at it today and as we'll look at it next week, uh, there are problems and some would even say warts on this nation. Things that we don't like, things that we would love to see changed, things that we would want to have different. And certainly this morning this idea of relativism, American relativism, the pervasiveness of it in our society, in our culture, is one that I as a pastor would love to see Different, though, it seems like the task ahead of us in changing it is pretty daunting. You see, human beings are attracted to relativism. Not because relativism is true. They're attracted to it because relativism is easy. It allows us to eliminate an authority over us. It allows us to eliminate God altogether. And it allows us to be situationally correct in whatever environment we're in. In fact, in our notes there, we see that relativism is defined as the doctrine that knowledge or truth is relative and dependent upon time, place, and individual experience. Relativism teaches that there is no such thing as any kind of transcendent absolutes, like the Bible. Because if there were, that would presuppose the existence of a God, which is contrary to their, in fact, doctrine. One author wrote this of relativism, that that relativism refers to a theory or philosophy which argues that abstract values like truth, beauty, and morality are not absolute, but rather that they are dependent on the culture in which they exist. Now if I can give one caveat to that. I think it's okay as a pastor when I go to a hospital and I see someone's new baby and I say, Oh, that is a beautiful baby! I have had two sons, two babies, in the last three years. And to be quite frank, when a baby comes out, they're not all that together lovely, except to their mother. Mamas always love what their babies look like. And so in that situation, it probably is okay to be a little relative and say, Oh, it is a beautiful baby. But in society, really, beauty is not subjective, is it? See, we can associate relativism to truth. And we can stand adamantly behind that. But in all senses, morality, a beauty, anything that has a definite standard of yes or no, now, because of relativism, relativism has become a, eh, whatever you think attitude. Eh, whatever it is you feel like. There are two main types of relativism as we study the theory and as we consider its impact upon our culture. We'll see an example of it played out in our news, even this week. But the two main types are first, moral relativism. Moral relativism there in your notes may be of any several philosophical positions concerned with the differences in moral judgments across different people and cultures. Descriptive moral relativism holds that only some people do in fact disagree about what is moral. Metaethical moral relativism, that's a big one, holds that in such disagreements, nobody is objectively right or wrong. Consider that thought. (laughs) This is that theoretical realm in which people like to live. But by the way, it is the governing doctrine and philosophy of most of our ivory tower college university professors and presidents nowadays. This is what they teach. By the way, it is in the vast majority of secular and Christian colleges that they teach relativism. There is no objective right or wrong. It is all subjective to you. It is all situationally based. And so we see that moral relativism removes the right and wrong standard. Normative relative, moral relativism holds that because nobody is right or wrong, we ought to, here's a word you understand in today's society, tolerate the behavior of others even when we disagree about the morality of it tolerance or may we even change the phrase just a little bit differently political what correctness. correctness it all stems from moral relativism and it is the guiding singular principle in this culture that we presently call America Moral relativism is one of the main two types or the outcroppings of relativistic theory. But the second is relativistic truth. And you say, isn't moral relativism relativistic truth? And the answer is moral relativism grows and flows from relativistic truth. This states that there is no such thing as an absolute or an absolute truth. Truth is simply subjective to the culture, society, or even situation in which we find ourselves. If I may, before I go on, let me give you the Bible contrast to this. Jesus, in stark contrast, in total disagreement, gives his thought in John chapter 8. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. Set you free, as it's often said. Friends, Jesus said truth is not changing. Truth is absolute because it is based upon the unchanging changing nature of God. John chapter 1 says Jesus is the living Word of God. And as the living Word of God, if He is unchanging, then truth is unchanging. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 8 and 9 say this. Jesus Christ, the song we just sang, the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. The writer of Hebrews concludes in verse 9, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Friends, in America we have been carried about by a strange and diverse doctrine that is called relativism. So let's see if we can translate that to a modern day example. How many in here were hoping to see a different Supreme Court ruling on Wednesday. How many of us sat and said, well, Sean's right, Rush is right, Glenn's right, Michael Savage is right. Boy, all of these people, Uh, let's see, I left one out. Mark Levin is right. They are all right. Boy, I can't believe the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would let us, conservative Americans, down the way he did. How many of us felt that way? Be careful. I'm setting you up. My dad's waving his hand so I can get on him. I mean, if we're all honest, inside a little hand is going up somewhere. There's much backlash this week against Chief Justice Roberts and the 6-3 to three decision on behalf of the Supreme Court and the opinion, the decision opinion that was made. It is interesting if you sit back and actually read the decision, which on Friday morning I did read the 38-page brief. It was a slow day. That I would submit to you that Rush and Sean and Glenn and the host of other conservative talk show hosts, both liberal and conservative, I should say, are rambling on about the decision. But in reality, I believe the Chief Justice did the best thing for Americans. You realize this when you actually read the decision. He says first in the decision, he finally calls what it is a tax. Because that's what it is. I think the second thing that he did a favor for Americans, is that he taught us that the order is set up by following the guidelines. In this case, from the Constitution, he says, in essence, elections do matter. And that if we don't like this new tax, as they rightly labeled it, go follow the Constitution, a standard, and absolute, and vote the Congress and the President who passed this law out and vote in the people who, according to the Constitution, the standard of the law can repeal it. If I may, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion says this to the individual mandate as being part of the Commerce Clause. And I realize half of you are saying, "Uh uh-oh. Talking about the Constitution, constitutional law is worse than talking about the Old Testament, Pastor. You're really in for it today. What are you doing? But here's what he says as pertaining as it pertaining to the commerce clause. He says the framers gave the Congress the power to regulate commerce, not to compel it. And for over 200 years, both our decisions and the Congress's actions have reflected this understanding. There is no reason to part from that understanding now. He in essence said, this is not part of the commerce clause. Here was the decision, because the Commerce Clause does not support the individual mandate, it is necessary to turn to the government's second argument, that the mandate may be upheld as within Congress's enumerated power to lay and collect taxes. So, in his decision to have the individual mandate as part of the tax powers, he states this, the government asked us to interpret the mandate as imposing a tax. If it would otherwise violate the Constitution, by the way, Heretofore it has always been called a penalty. It has never been called a tax. Except, and unless you read the briefs that were presented before the justices of the Supreme Court, they then in fact said, it's either part of the Commerce Clause or it's a tax. Do you understand? Relativism meets its end when it finds a standard. And it ran into a standard. It was called the Constitution of the United States of America. And so we see that relativism works when it deals with the masses. Because everybody in the masses is just going to listen to what the news says. Or what their favorite talk show host says. Or whatever their favorite newspaper says. Or whatever their preacher preaches loudest about. By the way, as many preachers are preaching a message like this this morning, there are equal numbers of pastors who are preaching the converse message. We see in the decision, really, an an understanding, a help for us. Here's their decision. Congress's authority under the taxing power is limited to requiring an individual to pay money into the federal treasury. No more. If a tax is properly paid, the government has no power to compel or punish individuals subject to it. We do not make light of the severe burden that taxation, especially taxation motivated by a regulatory purpose, can impose – But imposition of a tax nonetheless leaves an individual with a lawful choice to do or not do a certain act. You can either pay or not pay your taxes is what he's saying. Good luck on not paying so long as he is willing to pay a tax levied on that choice. The Affordable Care Act's requirement that certain individuals pay a financial penalty for not obtaining health insurance may reasonably be characterized as a tax because the Constitution permits such a tax. It is not our role to forbid it or to pass upon it. It's wisdom or fairness. He says, look, I have a job and a standard that I must adhere to as a Supreme Court Justice. I'm not supposed to, oh, here's that phrase, legislate from the bench. You see what happens in our society that even conservatives get caught in relativistic thought. Why didn't he do it like I wanted to? That's what I wanted. You see, even good Christians can get caught up in that mindset and mentality. Hey, listen, a little bit of inside of me had its hand up, saying, "Oh, this isn't a good idea." We have those that are friends of ours, even on our staff, that, that don't have health insurance. They have a MediShare program. And guess what? This is going to change their life as well. This has real tangible uh, results even in our own church family. You see, when the law hits home, it really makes a difference, does it not? Here's the concluding thought that I thought was absolutely excellently written by our Supreme Court The chief justice of the Supreme Court. And I believe, by the way, the reason in which he decided to vote that way. That's a good note. I don't know what that is. But we'll have one of the ushers step out and see what's going on. There's some good music being played out there. Here's the concluding thought from that. The high court's conclusion is most telling and most condemning, he says. Members of this court are vested, the chief justice continues, with the authority to interpret the law. We possess neither the expertise nor the prerogative to make policy judgments. Those decisions are entrusted to our nation's elected leaders who can be thrown out of office if the people disagree with them. It is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices, well said. Here, here's, in essence, what he said in a lot nicer way, and I'm a pastor, so I guess I can get away with being mean. You were the stupid people that put him there. Don't expect me to fix your mess. That's right. You don't believe elections in November are important? They just became important. The problem is, is that this didn't happen in. October so that the fire and the vim and, vim and vigor from it will still be burning. You know what happens in a relativistic society, as we'll see? We just kind of go eh after about a month. Oh, what is that tax line on my my 1040 form? What is that? What is that for right there? We just forget. And we move on. You say, well, pastor, that was a pretty poignant thought. Well, I hope so. But really, that's not the point of the message this morning. But I hope that that point crystallizes the idea that relativism is absolutely rampant in this country. It rules the day. We see that relativism tells us that our chief justice should judge our way. And if he doesn't, then he's not on our side. Of course, conservatives are not alone in this relativism. The problem is that the liberal minds have not a qualm about changing with the wind in a relativistic society. And so it makes it seem that as conservatives, we ought to win a few of these battles, shouldn't we? As conservative-minded people, we sometimes think, well, sometime, at some point, I've got to act out on this relativism. In fact, 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume makes this point on relativism. He argued that reason ought to be slave of passions. In other words, reason's role is not to identify what is rational for people to choose or even right for people to choose. Instead, reason is reduced to merely devising the means for realizing whatever goals that people, following the profound moral reasoning of a five-year-old, just feels like choosing. We throw standards out, well, I don't feel like telling the truth. Listen, my three-year-old doesn't like telling the truth because it gets him discipline. We were having a dickens of a time teaching him how to be potty trained right now. Did you, did you take care of business, Drew? Yes, ma'am. No, you didn't. And yet that's exactly how most Americans live. They live on whatever they feel like doing. Whatever feels right, do it. Kind of like the Outback commercial. No rules. Just right used to be the commercial. It might work in Australia, but friends, it's destroying America. That's right. We have to understand that relativism is there. And so we make this transition then from the theoretical idea that relativism is, the practical application that we see it in our society, and now we see in Jeremiah chapter 6 really a teaching about it. The result of it, it can be traced in Scripture all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan whispered into Eve's ear, Thou shalt not surely die. Come on. You don't have to trust the Word of God. He was speaking against the absolutes of God's very words there. Relativism is at the heart... Of secular humanism. Humanism says that man is the height of all things. In fact, throughout the chapters and books of the Old Testament, we see the struggle of man trying to eliminate God. God laying down His law and His standard and showing how far short we fall of it. And so we get this mindset and this idea, this mentality from the Old Testament that there is a standard that we are to live by, an absolute, yet mankind over and over in a routine fashion, desires to seek his own and follow his own. And so we find that even in the nation of Israel, it wasn't just individual people, but it was entire nations that followed this. Study the book of Exodus, and we find Israel choosing their way over God's in the wilderness. In the book of Judges, we find Israel doing right in their own eyes, the book records. In the historical books, we read king after king of both Israel and Judah, choosing to depart from God's absolute standard, the law. And now we come to Jeremiah 6, a book of prophecy, speaking to Judah. Judah. Speaking to both the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And in fact, in chapter 6, he starts in verse 1. He says, "All ye children of Benjamin. He's talking now to them, a second message to the second tribe of that southern kingdom. Saying to them, listen, there is work to be done, Judah. There's work to be done in Jerusalem. We catch a glimpse of Judah's heart of relativism. It brought God's judgment as it always does for a nation. When we choose to do our own way and make our own rules. God warns that His soul, His presence, would depart from them in verses 8 and 9. He says, Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee. He said, Wake up and learn. But we see that Judah and Jerusalem did not learn. But there was still hope for them in verse 10. He says to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. There is still at least in that first question. He wants to warn us. But we must hear. And we must return. And so while the teaching is here for Judah and Jerusalem. I believe there is much application for us this morning. From Jeremiah 6 to a notice or to at least help to alleviate American relativism. And so notice with me in our notes and number one that relativism removes God's standard. Relativism removes God's standard. The second half of verse 10 deals with this idea. He says to them, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it, The problem for Judah, according to God, was that they no longer considered the law, his law, as their standard. It was no longer an absolute to them. And so we see that relativism removes God's standard by removing a love for God's word, letter A. The word of the Lord is unto them a reproach, and they have no delight in it. Does that sound like any country you know? How often have we seen that the progressive minds, the liberal uh, heart, the soul that is guided and directed by humanism, secular humanism, by a relativistic attitude, by moral uh, uh, subjectivity, by situational ethics, that one is the one that clamors loudly in the streets for the removal of the Ten Commandments. For the uh, 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 erasing of the past of God in this country. And so we see that here in Judah, they had this idea that the Word of God was no longer a love to them. It, in fact, was a reproach. May I ask, why is it a reproach? What does the Word of God do for us as believers? And by the way, what does the Word of God do to an unbeliever? It exposes our flaws. Amen. If you're in here this morning and you say, well, it doesn't expose my faults, friend, you are a relativistic denier of the word of God. You might be able to compare yourself with someone else and say, we are good. In fact, this week in a discipleship session, I was talking with one of our gentlemen and I said, you know, when we start to compare amongst ourselves in the church, it is easy to become very relativistically good. In a relative sense, I can be a lot better than you. But when we start to look at God infinitely high and lifted up, at us infinitely low and put down in our sins, that really the difference is maybe this much difference on an infinitesimal scale that I'm better than you. But I can always look around and find somebody that's worse. That's why I love relativism. I can find somebody worse off than me. But boy, when I come back to the standard of the Word of God, it's hard. It's difficult. It is, may I say, life-changing. That's why the old creature is passed away and a new creature is created in Christ Jesus at the moment of salvation because it's only through that new creation brought on and brought in by the Spirit of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and through victory over the tomb that we have any opportunity to walk in newness of life. there's any opportunity to live according to this word, it does not reside in our old man. And so we see that relativism removes God's standard because it removes first a love for God's word. But then secondly in verse 10, it removes a living of God's will. He says their ear is what? Uncircumcised. And they cannot hearken. First off, circumcision was an act that was required upon every Israeli boy. It was an action of outward separation from the world. It was an action in which they were to be living a standard that God set forth. By the way, the second word there of cannot literally shows an action word again. It is they are physically cannot do it. Why? Because the love of God's word is gone. The living of God's word is gone as well. If I don't love God's word, I can't live God's will. And so once I've stopped loving His standard, once I've started to remove that, once that is out of my life, then this life becomes much harder to live according to His will. But when was it that America began to become a pagan nation? I mean, anybody could argue. Was it the 40s? Was it the 50s? Was it the 60s? Was it the 70s? I mean, when was it? Was it just because of Woodstock? I would submit to you No. That it's a progressive movement. By the way, I was reading an interesting uh, little article uh, getting ready for next Sunday's message on prayer, uh, America in prayer. And and, and it's interesting that immediately after the formation of this nation, that according to historians, both church historians and secular historians, this nation was a very vulgar place. The streets of Boston, the streets of, of, of Concord, the streets of Plymouth were filled with vulgar slang men. Adultery and prostitution was rampant in early America, and it wasn't until the 1800 revivals, oh, you know, men like uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards and others of their great biblical, scholarly preaching of the Word of God, that our nation sensed a revival and a turning to God. Oh, yes, we had presidents and we had leaders who were godly men, but as a people group, we weren't necessarily pure as the driven snow. And by the way, sinners never are. And so it's easy that relativism becomes the guiding doctrine. You say, do they teach this in schools? They don't have to teach what the doctrine is. They just teach the practice of the doctrine. And it's so palatable to the natural man. It's so easy for us to adopt that it becomes part of who we are. Relativism removes God's standard, but secondly, it removes uh, good morals. I'm skipping much of what we could preach on in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. They have healed all, also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But verse 15, we see really that relativism removes good morals. Were, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? The answer is, hey, no. They were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall, uh, they shall fall among them that fall, and at the time that I visit them they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. While the erosion is slow, the movement in a relativistic society is always from good morals to bad morals. Why? Well, first it creates situational ethics. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they weren't. Robert Knight in his book, The Age of Consent, which I would recommend to your reading, a very good book on this subject, says relativism destroys the soul of a culture by whispering in a thousand ways that morality is entirely subjective and therefore situational. God says it more clearly here in verse 15. Were they ashamed because of their abomination? No, they were not. Consider the following situations that could someday rear their head in this country. The morality of which we today would say, oh, absolutely, we wouldn't or would do that. But who's to say this can't change? What about euthanasia? Oh, well. Pastor, I'm not not Jack Kevorkian. I don't want anybody dead. I don't care how old or how senior they are. Really? Well, let's take this idea, again, a practical matter of what was just placed into our hands as law in this country... And let's take it to its logical conclusion. Well, health care costs are always on the rise. And in a subjective world where it's situationally right to do whatever it is to lower costs for us, because God bless us, and they'll use that word by the way, we can't have 300 million people paying for just 5 million sick folks. And so if you're over a certain age and you have a certain ailment, you know what, take two of these sugar pills, go home and just die. It'll be easier for everyone. And of course, we would all say to that, Oh, pastor, you're just fear But may I submit to you, in a relativistic society that slides from good morals to bad morals, moving away from an absolute standard that is, life is valuable to God, and that it is God who gives and God who takes life, that in a society where there is no God, in a society where the common good is what is relatively used... How far of a stretch for is it to say that when someone is too bold and too cost-prohibitive, that it is no longer right for us to keep them around? You say, well, really? Is that what they're going towards? Well, look, they've already said that women can choose because they don't want the baby. We're already starting to kill them on the front end. What's the problem with killing them on the back end, according to relativism? And the answer is, according to relativism, there isn't. Oh, well, our society has better morals than that, do we? If we have better morals than that, it's only because there are some of us that still live by this book. Amen. Amen. You see, in a relativistic society, it creates situational ethics. How about the abolition of marriage? You say, well, wait, I thought you were going to preach about homosexuals being able to get married. No, I took care of that a couple weeks ago. (laughs) What about the abolition of marriage? You know what? This marriage thing is just too convoluted. There's states that have uh, bans on gay marriage. or states that don't. Uh, the federal government is for it. And the, the, this group is not against it. You know what? Here's an idea. IRS and others who might see, think this is a benefit. Let's just abolish the idea of marriage altogether. Well, come on, pastor. It's not going to come to that. Really? How? I mean, how hard of a stretch is it? We already have the majority of our society living in first, second, and third marriages anyway on the heterosexual side why would we stop there again I'm not pushing for these things I'm simply presenting to you that in a situational ethics environment in an environment that is guided by relativism that relativism removes good morals period how about lying how many of us were told our whole lives tell the truth yet we've had sitting presidents who can't tell the truth And I'm not even talking about our current one. Almost every president over the last three decades has had a major national exposure of direct lying. Even one of my heroes, the good Ronald Reagan. Iran-Contra, ring any bells with anybody? My point is, in a relativistic society, good morals become situational. And so therefore, because there is no standard, they have no answer. They can commit any abomination they want to. And by the way, what is an abomination to God? Well, Proverbs chapter 6 tells us the seven things he hates, a seven are abomination to him. Twice he lists lying lips. If you're a liar, you're an abomination to God in your sins. So let's be careful before we put a billboard up that talks about homosexuals being an abomination when every one of us in our sins is an abomination to God. Okay? And so the point here that God is trying to reinforce is that this society that did what was right in their own eyes, Israel and Judah's main problem, their relativism that guided their hearts and their attitudes, that guides all the hearts and all the attitudes of all of mankind, is the heart of abomination to God. There's nothing restrained from them. It it not only creates situational ethics, but it also cancels serious errors. By this, I mean what what really can be labeled as wrong. What can you say is definitely wrong? I'm not speaking legally, though there are times that laws did govern many of these things. But to the relativist, all laws are subject and open to interpretation and change. Thus, there is no sin worth blushing over, as God says in Jeremiah 6 and verse 15. He says to them, look, because of their relativistic heart, because of their moral relativism, they did not blush at their sin. Why should they? Why should they blush at homosexuality? Relativism tells me it's right for some. It's their choice. Notice, I didn't even argue that they were born that way relativism says even if they choose to go that way what's the big deal do you understand how the devil is so slick and so crafty and so cunning that he cunning that he has absolutely changed the heart of our argument well they were born that way no they weren't they were their choice that's not the argument they're sitting Step back. Get out of the argument. Understand that in a relativistic society, changing of the root of the argument is the best way to win. And they draw us into it. Well, it's choice versus birth. No, it's not. It's sin versus not sin. There you go. Amen. Well, that's according to your standard. Yes, it's according to an absolute standard. Adultery. Relativism tells us or tells me that everyone's doing it, thus society relatively deems it appropriate and so I can be involved in it. It's not found in the scriptures. Pornography. relativism says that the man is simply following his own natural whims. What's the big deal? Drug addiction. Relativism's plea is that they have a craving to be satisfied. Who are we to judge them? Murder. Relativism has deemed that the choice of a woman is more important than granting the choice to a child, and so therefore we would grant it and cede it to her and not to the unborn. We condone murder already. You see, it cancels out serious errors because when we can make it relativistic to, or, or, or relatively uh, suitable for our situation, it makes it a lot easier to explain away. But when I have to come back to an absolute standard, the Word of God, boy, it kind of crystallizes life. So, pastor, that's what it does. What can we do? Well, that's what we've got in number three. In verse 16, God gives us that. Relativism is removed by God's people. Verse 16, thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old path. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Relativism is removed by God's people, friends who are standing in the ways, and who are holding to the old paths, the old way that is established by the old standard, the Word of God. We see three quick points underneath that. by church is active in society. Did you realize that the separation of church and state was so that the state would keep its hands out of the church, not so the church would not be impacting the state? Right. That's right. That's and yet we've allowed in our relativistic society, any person that gets on CNN and any person nowadays that even gets on Fox News even, They inherently believe that that clause was written to keep the church out of the state. It could not be further from the truth. And yet again, we've allowed them to change what the words say. Knight, again in his book, The Age of Consent, says, the very existence of the church is inconvenient to those who want to indulge in debauchery. The church is a reminder that there may be eternal consequences for rejecting God and embracing sin. The only way to get around this unwelcome nagging is to make the church disappear or make it irrelevant. Isn't that what they're doing? And sadly, churches are just going hook, line, and sinker with them. I've been asked before why we're not incorporated as a church. I I cannot stress over and again how it's not but a matter of years before incorporated churches are going to be mandated by the state to do certain things. Amen. Oh, it's not going to happen. That's fine. You keep believing that. And when it does, I'll call you into my office and I'll say, Hey, look, I'm not a prophet. I just watched and saw what was coming. Friends, as a church, we need to be active in our society. You need to, let me just say it first, you need to vote. Amen. That's right. My vote doesn't count. 250,000 people say that. You're right. Your vote did not count and neither neither did the other 250,000. We also need to be active in society by sharing the gospel. And notice I didn't say beating down the door with issue items. By the way, this is coming up on the ballot in November and I'd like for you to vote for it. That's not what we do. That's not what I'm about. I don't care about those things. I care about them and how they impact us. What I care about when I knock on someone's door, and many of you I've knocked on your doors, or many of you have gotten flyers on your doors, many of you have heard about us in that way. We care about one thing and one thing only when we meet you. Anybody that's ever been to my wife and our house for dinner has come over as our guest. What is the first question I almost inevitably ask? Tell me how you got saved. Amen. Tell me how you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. Because friends, other than that, nothing in this life really matters. That's right. Amen. Once that is, is settled, everything in this life matters. And so as a church, we need to be active in sharing our faith. We need to be active in our society. The problem is, I don't doubt that there was a remnant in Jeremiah 6 who wanted to serve God, who wanted to live by the old path, who wanted to do what God, what pleased God, yet the majority of people had overrun them and their voice had grown so quiet that now God's judgment was upon the people relativism is removed by God's people, by churches active in society, but also by children admonished in the scriptures. Do you know one of the best things you can do generationally speaking is teach your children absolutes. We're learning this now with chores. Clean your room. I mean he doesn't say it this way, but in essence he comes back and half explains that he almost cleaned his room. Did you clean your room? And, and No, no, Daddy, I almost clean my room. Well, if you didn't clean your room, you did not clean your room. Well, come on, you, what are you, Hitler? <laughs> you must be the worst dad in the world. No, I just have an expectation of my son and what he should accomplish. We have so far lowered the bar for our children in this country... That expectations literally are higher for our dog and their obedience than for our children and their obedience. Amen. That's right. Spot didn't do this. How dare you, Spot? Johnny didn't do that. It's okay, honey. I don't want to hurt your ego. We have more expectations of our dogs. Sadly, that means we probably love them more, too. It's by children admonished in the Scripture. Mom and Dad, I can't encourage you enough. Teach your children right from wrong. And may I add, and the reason it is right and the reason it is wrong. It is removed by God's people, letter C, by choices that are attuned to the Supreme. And I was stretching to get it alliterated there. But simply put, what I'm saying is choices that are directed towards God. When I live my life, when I make my choices day in and day out, my choices should be directed and guided by the fact that there is a God who does have a standard, who does have expectations for me in this life. Your choices need to be attuned to the Supreme. In his September nineteenth, seventeen 1796 farewell address to the nation... George Washington made this statement. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should, who should labor to subvert these great pillars. Boy, I wish we had more men that were in leadership like that. William McGuffey, the author of the famous McGuffey's Reader's which were the mainstay really of American public education from 1836 until the 1920s, wrote this. Erase all thought and fear of God from a community and selfishness and sensuality will absorb the whole of man. That's what God's talking about here in Jeremiah 6. This happened to Judah. He wrote this, friends, for our learning so that we might step back and say, oh, there is a different way to live. Oh, there is a standard that I'm held to. Oh, there is someone who is high and lifted up. And oh, I am not the height of all things. Rarely will I quote the Pope in our church. So I will quote him as Cardinal John Ratzinger. He wrote this before he was the Pope. He and I actually agree on relativism. His views of relativism, denial of objective truth and the denial of moral truth in particular as a central problem of the 21st century. In fact, listen to what he wrote on April 18th in 2005 before he had become Pope. He says, today having a clear faith based on the creed of the church, which I would say the truths of the Bible, is often labeled as fundamentalism. Whereas relativism, that is letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism relativism, that does not recognize anything as definite and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's ego and desires. Friends, that's America. So what are we to learn today? Relativism has taken over our nation. I think we all would agree on that. It's taken over our nation just as it had Judah in Jeremiah chapter 6. The standard of God's words have been removed in our nation. Good morals have suffered because of it. Thankfully, there is a solution. The Bible says righteousness exalteth a nation. Righteousness means living right according to God's absolute standard. The resolution that you and I need to have as God's people is to live righteously in this present world. When we as believers live Christ's righteousness, when we vote Christ's righteousness, when we promote Christ's righteousness, relativism can and will be removed from our land. Well, pastor, I just think it's too close to the end times. I think the Lord's going to come back. But that doesn't mean we ought not try. Mm -hmm. You see, it's for lack of trying that relativism has taken over. It's for lack of trying that the old ways, the standards, the morals are gone in this country. So if we want them back, it's going to take a Herculean effort on our part. May I say a Christ-empowered effort from every single believer, whether they're old or young. To live a righteous life so that we might impact those around us and ultimately lift our nation to the standard that it once was.